big question, should you pray for God to give you a Mercedes? Um, that's our question of the day. Uh, not really, but kind of, kind of, because we're going to look at some words of Jesus, and then we're going to talk about context. And so, so uh, hopefully we learn, we learn some things about the ways that we approach Scripture, but also about the heart and the character of Jesus. Uh, we are looking and have been looking in the book of Matthew to explore what does it mean that Matthew presents Jesus as kind of the fulfillment of all things, the fulfillment of the promise of the people of Israel, the hope of one who would uh, fulfill the covenant, the law, perfectly, um, and, and bring God's people back into right relationship, but also like the fulfillment of who God is in character. That's both of those things are what we see um, Matthew kind of presenting Jesus as. So we've been specifically the last couple of weeks working through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7. It's essentially Jesus's uh, biggest concentration of direct teachings that are kind of universally or that the church has understood as universally applicable to, to us. So um, what we're going to do is we're just going to jump right into the first statement that we see Jesus making, and this is in uh, Matthew 7, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We're getting there. Um, we're getting there, and, uh, and he's just talked about judging other people, like, well, not, not to do that. This is the, uh, the old speck and plank teaching was just before this. And then he says this, and you can put it up on the screen if you don't mind, Brian. Um, Here's what he says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. That is a a pretty incredible promise right there. So, back to our original question, should you pray for God to give you a Mercedes? Uh, Let's let's just talk, can I tell you, let me tell you about Kevin, all right, and I'm just going to let you fill in the blank here. For just a minute, um, Kevin, Kevin still lives with his parents and does not pay rent. So I'm just going to ask you to finish this sentence. Kevin is a. Kevin still lives with his parents and he doesn't pay rent. Come on, what's going through your mind? Kevin is a what? Fill it in. <laughs> Freeloader. <laughs> yeah, mooch. <laughs> Kevin is a child. What is wrong with you people? Right? Like, the assumptions that we make, and one of you got it, you know, but the assumptions that we make, it was a little bit of a, uh, of a setup there. Um, it affects how we look at the rest of the world, and it certainly affects how we look at the scriptures. And so when we come in and we take a sentence or a phrase of Jesus and we say, all right, what's that mean? If we don't know more of the story, then we are tempted to turn it into whatever our natural bias wants to turn it into. All right, this is Theology 101. By the way, nobody reads the Bible and just does what it says. Nobody. Not me, not you, not your former pastor or your parents who are super, you know, godly church people. Nobody just reads the Bible and does what it says. We all bring a lens to it. So number one, we just acknowledge our biases. We just Right off the bat, we say we, we take a lens to the scripture. But the second thing we do is we try to understand the character of what's happening and the culture of what's happening um, when we look to the scripture. So we make sure that we try to find out as much as possible. So 
you have heard this, um, this passage probably a million times if you've been around the church for a while. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. But here's the thing. Um, we live right now in the United States. And in the United States, it is really hard for us to disconnect ourselves from the in- intense individualism and consumerism that we are surrounded by constantly. And so when we think about asking and receiving, it is really hard not to think of that at least in some level of material. Even if you aren't thinking about stuff itself, asking, when Jesus says, ask and receive, knock and the door will be open, we think about, well, I, the good things in life, right? Like, like security and, and, you know, and, and like good things happening and my, my job promotion and all of this stuff. And so what we end up doing is we end up taking something that in Jesus's, in, in the Sermon on the Mount can be incredibly soul shifting and very powerful and we turn it into a, a spiritual cheat code, right? Where we hit F3 and we get our little spiritual Snickers bar that falls down. So we get what we want as long as we ask in the right spirit. And we hear this kind of stuff a lot. The problem is that we don't read anything about Jesus that would actually lead us to think that what Jesus cares about most is giving us all the good stuff or is making us super comfortable in our lives or helping us fulfill the American dream. And so, so the, the next question is when we see Jesus using words and phrases like this, we have to say, what is it that maybe Jesus might be going after if it's not a cosmic punch code, right? Um, so so we're, that, we're talking there about what does it not mean. I'm saying right off the bat, we are not talking, when Jesus says things like ask and seek and knock, we are not talking about simply getting what we want, period. Whether that's stuff, whether that's anything else. Um, and and so, so if we're not talking about that, then what, what does this mean maybe? And what can we look and, and see? And how, how might this shape us? Well, first of all, one of the really interesting things is uh, in the original language, there's something called present imperative, which is the, um, the type of verbs that are being used. So instead of saying like ask once or knock once or this is something you should do, it's more like a way of being, a way of life. So we can almost read it like this. Asking people will be given answers. Seeking people will be finding things. And knocking people will see doors open. All right? And it's this idea of, of a way of life that we are encouraged to actually be doing and, and living in. All right? So, so, so that's just, just one thing to keep in mind. But let's keep going and, and see what the, uh, the next thing is. Because Jesus gives an interesting clarification, I think, here. So he says in verse, um, verse 9... Right after this, if you're given, you know, ask, seek, um, knock, and, and these things will be given. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? All right? Um, if your father then, though you, or if you then, uh, though you are evil, and like, that's not necessarily a put down. That's Jesus looking around the world and saying, look how you folks tend to treat each other. But even you, you want to give your kids good gifts. So if you can do that, just imagine the perfect love of a father and what the father can do. How much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Well, that just undermines everything I've just tried to convince you all of, right? Like, there it is. Like, just giving good gifts, you know? Like, it's all about God wanting to give these, like, good things to us. But here's the thing. 
Here's the thing. First of all, um, I, I think it's really interesting that in our world, we don't think about bread and stone being like similarities, but in, in the Hebrew culture, they would have looked very similar, right? It would have been like this sandy, dusty, packed cake that looks like either a loaf of bread or a stone that you might have kicked off the side of the road. Um, a fish and a snake would have been in the, like the same, the same family of being pulled out of the river and, and being given. So there's, a, there's a, a conversation that's about trickery in this. Just saying, do you think, do you think, like, do you think fathers would want to trick you? Like a good loving father, would they ever want to trick you? And I think this is important because think about the disciples. The disciples have heard only a short time before the invitation of Jesus to say, come and follow me. Come and follow me and I'm going to lead you toward life. All right? Leave everything behind. The gospels are full of people asking the question, is this guy trustworthy or is this an elaborate trick? Are the promises Jesus is making about the nature of God's kingdom, is it real or is it just a big trick? Is God really like this? And will I be okay if I truly change my way of life and follow this sort of God? This is about the whole sermon Jesus has just been giving. Loving our enemies, right? Um, Not living in judgment, learning self-control, moving beyond worry, leaving behind the poison of anger. All of these things have been what Jesus has been saying leads to the good life. But the the question is, will it really though? If I leave everything I have to follow you. So the underlying questions Jesus is addressing is not about what we want, but it's about God's desire to lead you to life, to fullness. Um, So so Jesus is giving voice to that invitation of God. And, uh, And I think he was probably fully aware of the words of Isaiah 65 when he taught the sermon. And this is really interesting because this whole invitation of God has been something that is echoed throughout the scripture. So if you see in Isaiah 65... Some of you, this is probably a little bit new to you. Look at these words. I was ready to be sought out by those who did not ask, to be found by those who did not seek me. I mean, come on. We are not just like getting lucky here. Jesus knew exactly this passage, and he was referring to it when he gives this invitation. So God says, I was ready to be sought out by those who aren't asking. I'm right here to help move you toward life. I'm ready to be found by those, but you're not seeking me, but I'm available. He said, I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that didn't call on my name. I held out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. So the idea here in the character of God that Jesus is, that Jesus is, is reminding us of is that, he long, that God longs to extend arms and to respond to help us move in a way that is good. Help us move toward the best of God's life. Not to get what we want, but to move toward life, to move toward the types of things that Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. So the root of what we're asking for is literally what Jesus has been teaching right before all of this. God longs to give good gifts to his children, he says. And what is the greatest gift that God longs to give according to Jesus? Check it out later in the Gospels. Go ahead, hit me, Brian. Sorry, don't have connection. Nope, wrong one. There it is. Nope, I messed my slide up. Do you have the slide from, uh, from Luke 12? Did I put it in there? Oh, man, I didn't put it in there. I'm going to tell you. That's right. Now I remember. I remember that I was like, I don't need to put that slide up there. Got that one right. <clears throat> in Luke 12, Jesus says to his disciples, hey, don't be afraid, little flock, 
for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. So what we see is the greatest thing that Jesus desires to give his disciples is the gift of the kingdom itself. The gift of a world that is free from guilt and shame, a world where there is shalom and there is enough for everyone and justice reigns, a world where there is forgiveness readily given and received, a world where the poor have enough, a world where the rich are humbled, a world where everything is set right inside us and in our reality. This is what Jesus longs to give us. So God is good, is what Jesus is reminding us over and over, and desires to lead us toward life in every way. But here's the thing. When Jesus says all of this, and he puts it in asking, knocking, and seeking language, he's maybe suggesting that there's an active part that we need to play in this experience of the kingdom. That that God is trustworthy to empower us to live the ways of the kingdom, but we need to have a willingness to move toward God and be changed. Otherwise, we'll just end up standing there. See, sometimes in our relationship with God, there's a passivity that can, can take over. And Jesus seems to be maybe naming that in saying, ask, seek, knock. Um, telling us we're missing out if we remain too passive on some of the things that God longs to help us move toward. Um, and that might be rooted, I've been thinking about that, maybe rooted in how hard it is for us to trust God and God's goodness. It might be rooted in how fiercely independent we often find ourselves. Um, you know, we, we often, I think, don't trust how good God actually is. We envision God either as a harsh father who only sees our faults, or God as some unknowable force that we can't truly move into relationship with, um, or we just don't believe that God can transform us. Anything like that. And so for whatever reason, it leads us to to be really passive. And I want us to think about this because asking, seeking, and knocking is not a passive posture, right? So here are some of the other ways that I think we can be passive. Um, We'll just put the first one up Um, in, in, uh, in our connection with God. I think sometimes, man, I did it again. I truly messed up all of them. Do you see the, uh, let's keep going down. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Man, I was all over the place yesterday. All right, so one of the ways, I, do, I don't write my sermon on Saturdays. I just usually do the slides. So just so you know. I've been thinking about this stuff for at least 36 hours. <laughs> Some of the ways that this looks like when we become very passive in our faith. So sometimes it looks like outsourcing our faith. And I get the irony of me offering a teaching about outsourcing our faith because one of the ways that we outsource our faith is we let our pastors kind of like define our faith for us. Or we grew up in a Christian family and so like we just kind of trust our background and, and we just kind of outsource it. We listen to, to good podcasts. We're kind of always interested in the world of the head, but we just kind of stand there as, a, as someone who, yeah, I'm happy to receive, but not necessarily pursue. And there is pursuit sometimes in learning the information and in being formed, but sometimes it's easy to kind of outsource our faith and say, as long as I have inputs around me that are like good, then, then I'm, I'm good. But you're missing out maybe on some of the things internally that God wants to do if we don't personally move toward a sense of pursuing. I find it interesting that when I ask people about, if, if I'm sitting down with somebody and I talk to them, tell me about your, your journey with Jesus, they mostly just give me a church history. Well, I went to church when I was younger, and then I stopped going to church, and then I went to this church, and that was good. And then I 
didn't go to church. My, my parents are Christians. I'm like, that does not actually answer any of the things that I was curious about. I want to know, what is the texture of your connection with Jesus like? You know, and, and so often all I hear about is the external sources or inputs, but not the actual journey itself. And so, so we can do that. Um, the, another thing is that we can assume our connection with God requires no effort. Um, and what that means is sometimes, like, have you ever heard that, that uh, like, marriage, like, if it's right, it should be easy? Have you ever heard, like, when it's, when it's right, it should be easy? That is so not true. That is horrible, horrible marriage advice or relationship advice. If it's good and healthy, it should require intentionality. And everything that's good requires intentionality. Yes, there will be times of absolute lightheartedness and joy. But sometimes we think, well, if, you know, like, this, this shouldn't feel like work. Let me tell you, learning to slow down and embrace silence, learning to let Jesus shape us in the hard ways so that we relate better to our family members and spouses and coworkers, that takes real work. And we can be very passive in it and say, well, you know, like, if, it, if it's work, then, then maybe it's not like the, the joy of the Lord, so I'm just going to kind of avoid it. But Jesus wants to shape us in really big ways, and sometimes that takes work. And we can be very passive if our baseline idea is, well, you know, connection with God shouldn't feel like work. There is great beauty and joy in resting in the words of Jesus, even like what Dwayne led us in a few moments ago. But there's also intentionality of saying, I want to be a different person next week than I am this week. I don't want to be so afraid of conflict. That's me. You know, I don't want to be so, uh, so stressed out about all of, all of these little things like, like we talked about last week with worry where we replay or we, we, um, we preview our, our worst nightmares over and over, preview bad memories. Was that last week? Was worry last week? Or was that two weeks ago? I think it was last week. Okay. Anyways, um, so, so this is one of the other things. So if we keep going, a third way, a final way that maybe we can look very passive in our faith is that we can become so impacted by our woundedness that we stop putting ourselves out there. So we can, we can, refu- we can, we can find ourselves no longer asking, seeking, and knocking if we've been through a lot of pain, specifically in religious culture at the hands of churches where we've felt judged or we've been sold kind of a false bill of goods. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, but, but we can just say, you know what, I've just been so, ugh, this is so hard that I'm just, I'm just going to kind of be a bystander. Now, there is plenty of grace for the legitimate trauma that so many of us have experienced. However, the invitation of Jesus is to continue to move with and through that, and that Jesus continues to be a safe place to land. Like I said, we're going to talk about that in just, just a second. So now there's an alternative however, uh, to asking, seeking, and knocking that is not just passivity. It's we can be aggressive <laughs> in our relationship with God. So we can be passive on one side, which is not asking, seeking, and knocking, or we can be aggressive on the other side in some ways. And so I was thinking about that this week, and I think aggressive approaches to God that cause us to not ask, to not seek, to not knock, are things like acting like we have all the answers, Right? Um, feeling like we have got it figured out, so I don't really need to ask. Especially if we use the scriptures and proof texting things to prop ourselves up. I don't really need to ask any more questions. I have it figured out. Um, that, that is linked to um, deciding that we know exactly what, it, what God is saying for us and others. The second thing. 
um, saying that, well, you know, I have this figured out. I hear the voice of God so clearly that I know exactly what God's saying to me, and I know what God's saying to you, Nate. So, you know, I hope you hear it too. But if you don't, you're wrong, right? Um, and so what we end up doing is we end up, we end up claiming things without humility. And instead of seeking after God, we use spirituality almost as a power play, and we can use that in our relationship with God or our relationship with others. And that, again, is linked to the third one, uh, using our faith as a weapon to win arguments or to feel self-righteous in comparison to other people. So we can use our faith as a weapon. This is a very aggressive way. So we, and, and we, unfortunately, I hate to say this, but unfortunately, when we use language around truth, that's often what we mean. I'm standing for truth instead of holding that as I'm trying to do my best to seek out what is good, true, and beautiful in the world, standing for truth often becomes I'm going to try to win an argument against you, Um, which can be really problematic because it doesn't feel like love. It takes on a posture of I'm ready for the battle right off the bat instead of my goal in life is to love God and love my neighbors. Um, And then the final thing is very internal, that's writing off God, not the final thing, these are just a few things that can help us see this framework, but writing off God when God doesn't perform like we want. So so that can lead to passive or aggressive, that could be on either side, but the idea of I'm going to say, well, you didn't give me what I want, God, so I'm I'm out of here, right? I'm I'm taking control. And again, that's often rooted in in a misunderstanding of the nature and the character of God, and sometimes in a misunderstanding of the nature of prayer. Um, but we can, we can do that. So on one side, we can be very passive and avoid knocking, asking, seeking, honestly. And on the other side, we can be aggressive and we can miss the boat. Um, and so when Jesus says ask and seek and knock, he's offering us a third way that's neither passive nor aggressive. It doesn't beat down the door, um, but it, it also doesn't like put a cake on the stoop and then run away like in Napoleon Dynamite like Pedro does when he wants to ask that girl to dance, you know, like rings the doorbell and then runs, you know, so she doesn't see him, you know, like the, the, we, we are invited to be bold, but to do so with humility, and that's, that's the thing. Um, in, instead, if we take a posture of being curious, of being open, and of being intentional in our relationship with God, then we find that the vulnerability there brings great growth. Um, and here, now you can put up the, uh, the quote on questions that, um, Brian, thanks, that I was mentioning. It's um, a, a quote by uh, Rob Bell about the questions that we have. It was probably earlier there, in, uh, right after the Luke passage. Thanks. And he writes this in, one, in his first book that he wrote. He's an author. Um, he wrote in a book called Velvet Elvis, and he says, This is why questions are so central to faith. A question by its very nature acknowledges that the person asking the question does not have all of the answers. And therefore, they're looking outside of themselves for guidance. Questions, no matter how shocking or blasphemous or arrogant or ignorant or raw, are rooted in humility. A humility that understands that I am not God and there is more to know. So when Jesus says, ask, by nature, if we do so in the character of God, we do so with a humility that says, I have needs, but also I want to know. And I don't have it all, not yet, and I never will. So, so we embrace that. Um, now, now, what can happen is if you've been given the first way of interpreting things, just ask God for that Mercedes and it's coming, 
um, then, or, or if you've been through a lot of other things, uh, let's talk about deconstruction for just a moment, because um, Jesus' ask, seek, and knock invitation might be difficult to embrace if you have walked through times of intense reorientation in your faith. Um, that's a natural journey, the journey of deconstruction, but it's super, super hard. So just to, to give you just a little bit of language that we use here at LifePath, um, and this comes from a number of sources, but one of them is, uh, is Richard Rohr, um, that in the journey of healthy belief, there are three stages that you constantly go through, and you actually cycle through them a lot, but you begin with what we just call order, Okay. Order is when you have untested belief, peace, and convictions. So you've been given something that you believe to be true, and it feels good. It's not really been tested, but you're comfortable with it. And then at some point, something happens where like this chaos enters. Maybe you've been Uh, told that God answers prayer in exactly the way that you think and you pray for someone to be healed and they're not. But you know it would be God's heart, right? Maybe it's um, you've been told something about the scriptures that you learn isn't exactly true in the way that you've told. Or maybe um, you are let down by a spiritual leader who, um, who betrays trust in some way. It can be all sorts of things, but you move from order to disorder, okay? Disorder is super, super hard because disorder feels like no ground is, is solid. You're like, you're like Indiana Jones, and you're walking across this, um, this, this stone, stone bridge, and all of a sudden you take a step, and it's a booby trap, and different stairs or steps start just falling away, and you don't know if there's anything that's solid, right? And so you just are paralyzed, And that's what ends up happening in this journey of disorientation or disorder. So so you feel like you can't move. It's a very paralyzing thing. You lose hope. You become very cynical. And it's really, really hard. But it's necessary. That's the heart. That's the thing. It's necessary. If you continue, I believe, and we see it over and over again, and Rohr talks about this, if we continue to seek truth in the midst of this and to say what is worth holding on to and what is it okay to let go of, all right, then we begin to move toward a more stable place that we call reorder. Reorder reclaims some sense of your innocence, saying that I can, I can hold my beliefs, but now they've been tested. Now they're not so flimsy. And now I feel like I can stand on them and walk forward, and it's going to look very different. And often what ends up happening is as the years go by, new elements come in, and they disrupt that again. So once you get to reorder, you get pretty comfortable, and then something happens, and then you move to disorder again, and then you have to say, all right, Lord, what's, what's going on? What can I trust, and how do I, how do I rebuild this? But that's how we grow. But anyways, if you are in the middle of this, which people often get stuck in for a long time, sometimes they walk away from their faith completely. But if, if this is what happens, then it can become very hard to read words like Jesus' ask, seek, and knock, because we're like, well, that's just been abused and used really poorly, so I'm not going to do anything with it. And we miss the invitation that Jesus says is, listen, if you want to experience life in the kingdom, if you want to learn how to love your enemies, if you want to learn how to mature in new ways, if you want to learn how to, how to cultivate intimacy with God, then, then ask God for it. 
then seek out what's true and don't give up. And, and when we do that, we find that there is beauty and we will have a sense of God's heart. And we will learn what our calling is and where we fit in the world and how we can love the world really well. And we will find that our relationship with God becomes much more robust and there's beauty in it. But that can often be a really, really difficult thing. So, um, yeah. So maybe because of your past, because you've seen ugly stuff done in the name of Jesus or within the church community or simplistic ways of looking at the Bible uh, that made unfair promises, then diving back into pursuing God can feel really, really traumatic and it's going to require courage. It's going to require courage to, be, to move beyond the, the disillusionment. Um, but that's okay. You are allowed to struggle here and not have everything figured out. None of the rest of us do. If they do, unfortunately, they're lying. So, Instead of being passive or aggressive in learning the way of God and his kingdom with humility and boldness together, we ask, we seek, we knock. And so what are we asking for then? Sometimes, granted, it's pretty selfish. Sometimes the the Mercedes does come into play. But here's the thing. If you have children, would you prefer that they didn't ask for anything or that some of their good requests were mixed in with some stupid ones. Most of us in the journey say, well, I want, I want my kids to talk to me. I want them to say, hey, I, I need some help here. Try to figure things out. Also, can I get those Nikes? No, not today. <laughs> but I'll work with you on the other stuff. I tend to think that God's perspective is like God can handle the, the kind of self-focused stuff that comes out when we're just being honest about God, about our prayers and stuff like that. But the goal is that we're always actually coming to God and not avoiding, not, not missing out on that, even if our, our requests aren't, aren't great. But we ask God to help us walk fully in the kingdom. We seek strength to love our enemies for grace when we fail, right? Like I mentioned, for eyes to see God's goodness in others, for forgiveness, And we trust in those moments that God will see us, God will respond, God will reveal, God will open doors. And Jesus invites us not to figure it all out on our own. So the question there throughout all of this is where is Jesus inviting you to a new season of asking, seeking, or knocking? Where might Jesus be inviting you into a new season of pursuit? Because there's new beauty and there's more beauty to be received, to be experienced out there. So I want you to be thinking about that. So we talked about what this passage doesn't mean, and we talked about what it does mean. And I want to just spend a moment on talking about what it could mean. Because uh, as I was doing some work this week, I came across an interpretation that was brand new to me. And, like, it doesn't happen that often um, because I've looked at things from a lot of different angles. And I was absolutely fascinated by this because there is one more verse at the end of all of this that we haven't looked at yet in this exact same section. So Jesus says, can you throw verse 12 back up there? Or verse or 9 to 11 back up? Um, there we go. So he says, which of you, you know, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So it's all about prayer and seeking God. So what's the final verse in this? Then he says in verse 12, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. If you're kind of cocking your head and being like, how does that fit in everything that Jesus just said, then you're in good company. Because Jesus just said this whole thing about ask me, seek, knock, 
and God longs to give you good gifts, and it's all about this kind of internal connection with God. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And here's what I think we might be missing. Here's what it could mean. See, the whole Sermon on the Mount, I mentioned when Duane, that was kind of a setup when I mentioned the link between loving God and loving others and how you just can't disconnect it. The Sermon on the Mount is fascinating. In one moment, Jesus talks about prayer. In next moment, he talks about not judging other people. In one moment, he talks about this internal world of of dealing with lust and selfishness. And then in the next moment, he's talking about how to love your enemies. There's no disconnection. So so the interpretation suggests that when Jesus talks about asking, seeking, and knocking, he's actually looking over this entire last few hours slash chapters that people have been listening to. And that this command even is not disconnected from our calling to love our neighbors. And here's, here's the thing. Um, we often read this just as the spiritual God in me perspective. In, in a book called Beyond the Law, Living the Sermon on the Mount, Philip Clemens advises us to read these words in the context of Jesus uh, teaching us how we treat others. Here's what's cool. He's just given these negative examples like judgment and hypocrisy. And now he gives positive ones. But Clemens interprets Jesus' uh, advice this way. He says, instead of telling, we learn to ask. Instead of presuming, we learn to seek. And instead of forcing, we learn to knock in our relationships with other people. Telling, presuming, and forcing are often the, res- the results and the responses that we humans do in our relationships with another. And I think that there is something there for us to think and put this framework on in our relationships. It describes the human posture so often We talk at people rather than asking helpful questions, right? We presume rather than seeking to know another. Um, We force our perspectives instead of waiting to be invited and knocking and saying, if you open the door, I'm happy to join in. Uh, Maybe we need to put the ask, seek, knock framework as one of our tools to learn how to love our world, our enemies, our neighbors. Um, and so since I was doing what we did with, uh, with the last one and saying that asking, seeking, knocking is a third way between being passive and being aggressive, I thought, well, what would it look like if we did the same thing? So how can we maybe be too passive in our relationships with others? I'm just going to zip through this real quick so we can dialogue for a couple minutes. But I think one way we can do that is always assuming that someone else will take initiative in relationships, right? We can be very passive in saying, well... Relational development will happen when somebody else gets the ball rolling instead of actually putting ourselves out there a little bit. Um, Being passive in relationships also looks like holding on to grudges without seeking reconciliation. So instead of actually having interaction, we just stay here and we just stew in a wrong that we feel or something that we feel was done to us and we don't work to make it right. It's a passive posture instead of asking, seeking, and knocking and looking for right relationships. And then linked to that is constantly critiquing others silently without getting to know them. So these are all passive approaches to others instead of asking, right? Constantly critiquing others because we don't have curiosity, right? So in the same right, on the flip side, we can be aggressive in our relationships with other people. And that was kind of what I mentioned earlier, speaking at people rather than having curiosity and asking wonderful questions of them. It's probably valuable to think back to the last 10 conversations you had and say, how many questions did I ask 
versus how much time did I spend talking? And it's a really helpful tool for us to say, are we, are we making sure that in our relationships we're opening doors for meaningful sharing all the time? Um, another one that we can be aggressive is, is that when we look at people, we are seeking to fix them instead of actually to care about them. Every time we hear about something, we say, well, here's, here's the solution instead of, I want to sit with you and I want to make sure that you feel known and loved. And maybe that involves helping to work through it, or maybe it involves actually just acknowledging the person's pain or joy or journey. Um, and then, this is a broad one, but we can be aggressive in our relationships when we force our agendas on other people or our priorities or our issues, which is really about a lack of boundaries. So we, we suggest that because something matters to us, we have to make it matter to everybody else, but maybe it's something that God's wired you to uniquely. Or maybe um, when we are frustrated about something, that gets pushed out onto somebody else um, in a negative way instead of us treating that person fairly like they're the next person in front of us instead of putting all of our back experiences onto this person when we, when we interact with them. So again, um, this can be both how we approach God and learn to trust and how we learn to treat one another and flourish together. I find it amazing that the same passage could actually potentially encourage boldness and persistence in our relationship with God, and the exact same teaching can, can encourage gentleness and humility in our relationship with others. I just think that's, that's beautiful. But it's something to consider, interpreting this in both levels and saying, God, how might you, uh, how might you shape me? Um, so in just a moment... Um, I, uh, I, I'm going to open this up for us to have a little bit of dialogue and share, share some, uh, some catchbox time. But I was thinking that um, in the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer, there is a very famous prayer called the Prayer of Confession that many of you maybe have known before. And as I was thinking about this beauty of living a life of intentionality, but not being passive and not being aggressive, I thought about that confession that the prayer goes, Most merciful God... We confess before you that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done, aggressive, <laughs> and by what we have left undone, passive. Um, and, and it's a, a prayer of repentance of saying, Lord, there is times where I just don't do much and I miss the mark. And then there's times that I do things and I miss the mark. And I need you to help me walk a third way. Um, so... I just found that, that beautiful as a, a prayer of confession, and I find it relevant in my own life. Uh, so, all right, let's just take a deep breath. I know I just threw out a bunch of information. Um, in a moment, we'll uh, ask these questions. So, uh, so let's just center ourselves on Jesus um, so that we don't move into the realm of the head and the mind before actually the heart. Lord, help us to just hear your words and your invitation that remind us of your goodness, of the good gifts that you long to give, uh, but to also embrace that the goodness that you long to give is the kingdom and its values and your presence itself. So draw us into this moment and let anything that we need to have fall away, fall away, so that we can hold on to something that can help us look more like you and experience your love and grace even deeper.
Amen.